Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. For more than two centuries, the American South has fascinated Americans, and increasingly those outside North America. And its economy, politics, religion, race relations, literature, and food have influenced all the commensurate parts of national life. Now, the new history of the American South draws together the talents of many historians to create a new narrative of Southern history, from the distant past of prehistory to the present. Drawing on both old and new scholarship, the new history considers all the experiences of all the peoples of the South, indigenous, black and white, male and female, poor, elite, and middling. W. Fritz Hugh Brundage is the editor of A New History of the American South, which means that he is the impresario of the troupe of actors involved in creating an edited volume. He is, in normal life, the William Umstead Distinguished Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he has written on lynching, utopian socialism, white and black historical memory, and the history of torture in the United States from the time of European contact to the 21st century. He is currently working on a study of Civil War prisoner of war camps. Fitz Brundage, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to focus on your introduction, since I figured you shouldn't take responsibility for what other people have written, and you're happy not to. Oh, uh, we'll talk. <laughs> anything that they wrote that's good, I, I had a hand in. Absolutely. You you carefully, painstakingly edited Absolutely. that Absolutely. Uh, despite their resistance. But we'll get to that. Right. We'll get to your the genius and the, right. the trials of, of the editor of a... Because I don't think I've ever... I usually I kind of avoid talking to editors of volumes because it's like multiple people write right. things and, you know, essays are of different quality and stuff like that. But this is such a tight volume. But at the same time, we're just going to talk about your introduction. There's more than enough for us to talk about for three hours. So I, I want to ask this question first, because uh, as, a, as a, a boy from New Jersey, when I go to conferences in the South, even very progressive uh, well-intentioned Southerners say to me after a bourbon or two, they lean forward conspiratorially and ask me, so why are you interested in the South? Um, I've never asked, but I always assume from your name that you came by it sort of like historically. Uh, I'm, I'm a mongrel. Uh, my father was from Illinois and <laughs> my mother was from Virginia. Okay. And, uh, my mother was deeply steeped in that world, and my father looked upon that world as exotic and curious and uh, a little strange. Uh, so I grew up, uh, and we also, my father was a large construction engineer overseas much of my childhood. So I grew up, I would say, of the South, but not in the South, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, it makes perfect it's sense. It's very familiar to me. Oh, I should say the South that I'm familiar with was the South of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it was very comfortable. Which, which part of Virginia? Loudoun County, Northern oh. Virginia. Yeah. So it was uh, in my lifetime, of course, that county has been utterly transformed. But when I, when I was a child, uh, the quote unquote old South was accessible anytime I went to my aunt's house. Uh, I had three spinster aunts. That's, I know that's not an appropriate phrase to use, but that's how they were referred to. And going to visit them was like stepping back into the 19th century, almost literally. I mean, I'm, we're going to get yeah. deep in the weeds here, but right. I lived in Loudoun County for a little time. Oh, yeah? So where, where in Loudoun County? Uh, we lived in Lincoln. Okay. Uh, which is a little Quaker community. It's a controversial name, and uh, yeah, that, it, that that gets to what Loudoun County's interesting place. Absolutely, in, in Virginia, and and Virginia that that's mythology. also a part of of my growing up. I grew up with uh, some of our closest friends who were Quakers. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, the Quaker fa Quaker family who lived there when the name was changed to Lincoln, uh, and had friends in Waterford. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, my mother's family was from Leesburg. Mm -hmm. So in any case, I grew up in the South in a way, but also observing the South 
from my father's perspective, but also literally from overseas. And so uh, the South interests me in perhaps a different way than it would interest somebody whose entire life has been spent in the South. That's very interesting. I, I have to say, I, I vividly remember my first time going to Virginia when I must have been four or five. Uh, it was the Eastern Shore. Mm. And I grew up in South Jersey. So geographically, in terms of geology, there are so many similarities. Mm. But there, then that made me, as a five-year-old, I distinctly remember differences. And that stuck with me for decades afterwards. So it's like that is sort of the, the that's a sort of the, the sand that's in my shoe ever since, you know, that made me, made me see things. It was like looking at South Jersey, but with my head tilted to one side. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think for me growing up where I did, uh, I, I did not know the South below Richmond. The mm -hmm. South that I knew, or, or the world that I knew was really Philadelphia to Loudoun County. And in that area, the commonalities are very strong from Philadelphia south into Northern Virginia, even though Northern Virginia, of course, Loudoun County at that time was still a, a much more rural county. That, I mean, it was a rural county. So in any case, uh, there were ways in which I think I grew up in a middle Atlantic culture as much as a Southern culture. Uh, and uh, that really became clear to me when I started doing research on my dissertation in Georgia, that this was a South I knew almost nothing about. Yeah. Uh, whatever similarities there were to Virginia were far less strong than the similarities between Virginia and Maryland, or the Virginia I knew. Yeah, so I, I when I matriculated at Johns Hopkins in 1987, Baltimore was much more of a Southern city than it is now. Mm. I think it still is. Uh, but I, I remember how uh, New Yorkers were pretty scared their first week there, you know, uh, because everybody white and black was obviously kind of Southern in a way that they had not expected. Yeah, it is interesting. So what is the South? Because we're here we are talking about Loudoun County. Uh, most residents of Loudoun County would now resist the notion that they had ever been part of the South. Uh, most of the new ones, yeah. Yeah, most of the new ones. I even teaching in England in like 2000, people were starting to resist the idea of Virginia's being part of the South, yeah. which I still think of just. I think that's a, that's a cuckoo perspective. Um, a, the Southern living, on the other hand, which is in some ways a a, a at least one extraordinarily important data point on what the South is, they very austerely insist. Basically, it's all the states claimed by the Confederacy. So Delaware is always on their list of like, you know, things to do this month in the South. Delaware is always on the list. And there is certainly an argument for Sussex County, the southernmost county of Delaware, is an extremely important. You go there, it's different than Newcastle County, mm -hmm. and that's because of slavery mm -hmm. um, to this day. So what is the South? Well, that's. I mean, we, we. This is this is where we all. This is where we knock back our bourbon and right. start. You know. Well, that's that's a hour. that was a challenging question for us from the outside. As uh, outset, we were trying to figure out. Okay, how do we approach this question of what is the South? And we didn't. When I say we, that's collectively the authors. We discussed this collectively. We didn't want a kind of teleological notion of the South, which is. Uh, uh, you can see that in the um, LSU series, uh, history series, that the multi-volume series that includes C. Van Woodward's Origins in the New South, in which there, is, there, there was a narrative structure to identify when the South emerged, when did the South become the South, and then to trace the evolution of that South forward. And we didn't want a kind of teleological approach to that, assuming that there is a moment in time when the South becomes the South, because it seemed to us that the South was, the South didn't have a kind of permanent, it's this, the definition that South was always relational, which I think is true of many regions in many countries of the world, but it's a particular problem in the case of the South because of the multi, the number of imperial regimes that were active in the South at different moments in time, and then the fact that part of the South, or 
what we call the South became an independent nation. So there, there are many vectors, if you will, to trace. So we concluded that we would adopt, uh, we adopted what I think is a, uh, what would I say, a, it's not elegant, but it serves our purpose, a, a heuristic purpose, which is we've uh, concluded that the South, as we think of it today, is an acceptable starting point for looking at the South. And then we trace back the history of that geographical space that we call the South, recognizing that not all of that space through that entire period of time would have been understood by occupants of that space as the South. So it's in some ways it's a geologically it's a geographic entity that we're interested in. A, the southeastern corner of the North America of, of present day continental United States, recognizing that that is the conventional usage today. And what we hope we've avoided, as I said, is the idea that somehow at a certain moment in time, the South became the South and then the history subsequently is in some ways the maintenance of that static category of the South. We wanted to free ourselves from that for, for a variety of reasons, not just that it's fun to do it as a historian, but that there are interpretive analytical reasons why that's a valid approach. Okay, we're gonna, of necessity, keep on right. circling back right. to this. I realize I, that was... <laughs> No, it's, right. it's, it's a great, we have to start somewhere. Right. Because by almost everything you write in the introduction kind of, kind of circles back to this. Right. And I'm, I'm very, um, I'm interested to, I think we'll finish off by contemplating, I think, was this John Shelton Reed's dissertation, The Enduring South? Mm -hmm. Which is in a weird way, in 2023, it's kind of weird that we can still talk about the South in ways that I didn't think that maybe 25 years ago, I wasn't sure that that was going to be possible. Um, and in ways, in ways in which um, New Englanders really kind of stopped talking about New England in a really weird way, uh, even in, certainly in the last 50 years and maybe even more recently yeah. than that. Um, but if the South continues to be, it, you know, I, I, I'm listening to this one podcast, I'll link to it, the Southern Foodways Alliance puts out called Gravy. Mm. Um, and they take a very pan they want to make sure they include every ethnicity that's in the new in the new new south uh and yet what's always amazing to me here are vietnamese roman catholics in galveston who think of themselves as texan and southern mm -hmm. you know and so there's there's there is something about this that there's a capacious definition uh there's a velcro to southernness which people attach themselves to mm -hmm. you know, well and, and i think the 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 Velcro, which is a kind of nice image, the, the Velcro now is to the extent that people attach themselves to it, they attach themselves to attributes that are very positive in their minds. Like you of mentioned, course. music, food ways, uh, I'll call them customs and manners. Uh, mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. and. Well, there's a week at, I, I want to start with some of the things that the mythologies um, and sort of the um, the images of the South that both Southerners and um, non-Southerners, anti-Southerners mm -hmm. uh, also maintain. Um, is it, You know it's a good myth when both people who are pro and anti are sort of live by it. And one of them is the unchanging South. Mm -hmm. So could you explain the uh, what this idea of the unchanging South is first, then we'll talk about why it's wrong. Well, there's so many iterations of it, I'm not sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll offer my description of what I think of as the, the myth of the unchanging South. It's that the South is a region marked by certain static attributes, the most pronounced of which kind of deep cultural conservatism, mm -hmm. a deep resistance to change, which might seem like it's the same thing as cultural conservatism, but I mean change in every sense of the word. A, uh, how would I put this? Uh, I often joke that 
Southerners aren't good with irony, which of course seems ironic because C. Van Woodward made a career out of applying irony, but I think he partially did that because one doesn't think of country music, for example, as being filled with irony. There is, of course, country music that is, but the, the genre as we commonly talk about it seems very you know, literal earnest. Um, sincere. sincere. Sincere, there's the word for it. Um, so those, those would be some of the attributes and that the South stands out from the rest of the nation and that the United States is, as they used to say, the first new nation, a progressive nation, lowercase p nation, uh, a nation characterized by tremendous innovation and dynamism. And then there's the South. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are elements without question of that myth of the enduring of the static South, enduring South, the unchanging South, that I think are very important for us to take into account and, and trace. But there are also, it camouflages, obscures as much as it clarifies. Mm -hmm. we can, let, me, let, me, let me intensify this. So this is the way, this is the idea of a peasant South. This is an idea of a feudal South, mm -hmm. uh, and this is uh, something that uh, certain Southerners uh, rejoiced in this ideal, and 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 Yankees reforming reform-minded Yankees found abhorrent, mm -hmm. and then other Southerners, I guess Henry Grady, uh, also found abhorrent, or at least wanted to modify. So this is uh, people. Uh, this is Tobacco Road. This is Erskine Caldwell. Mm -hmm. This is people with hookworm, you know, and bare feet and overalls and nothing else on, yeah. you know, and and, and uh, slutty men and you know lazy women, yeah, uh, and and vice versa, mm -hmm. and um, and then when we compound that with racial uh, ide ideals, we have uh, a South which has always been a white supremacist South. And we can draw a direct line from, say, 1619 and the ship that wrought to Mississippi burning. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and the, basically the people that enslaved the, the, those that come off that Dutch ship are basically the same as the guy that Gene Hackman threatens with a razor in a barbershop. You know, it's the, the Klan members are just the same as those people. So this is, a, this is also part of an enduring South. Absolutely. This is the, they're, they're always like that. And it's a, a South that is uniquely violent uh, in a way unlike any other because that's part of their backwardness. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, this is the – I remember once, I won't say where or when, when I had a colleague who was incensed that I would study Southern history. How could I? This was appalling to this colleague because of the backwardness and the appallingness mm -hmm. of the unprogressiveness of the South. Yeah, I had the same experience. I had somebody ask me, why do you study those people? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and it's not because I like them, but I mean, that had nothing to do with it. I think you're absolutely right about that. And that's the, you, you've emphasized precisely the aspect of the enduring South or the static South, the unchanging South, that we need to explain how that goes along with a region that has undergone tremendous upheaval repeatedly. So if, if I was go to, going back to your original question about what is the South, I think one of the fascinating elements of Southern history is that it combines in such a conspicuous, sort of flamboyant, grandiose way, those two elements of, of history that I've been studying since I was an undergraduate, which is, you know, the old continuity and change. Well, it's fascinating to see in the South that you can have striking continuities with dramatic change. And how, how does that happen? Uh, how, for example, have whites managed to replicate their power over and over and over during periods of time when there have been fundamental changes to the economics and the politics in the American South. It's, it may seem like a simple question at the outset, but 
it's not, and it's required an enormous amount of energy. Mm -hmm. And that may... And rela and re related to that, I'm just, if yeah, I may, sure. related to that is also an idea, which I think is, I mean, is welded into the head of any undergraduate I ever taught, that slavery is always the same in every place and everywhere, which is, I think, very much wedded to the unchanging South. Mm -hmm. So there's an unchanging slavery. Now, it doesn't take much comparison study of medieval ancient slavery to realize one of the the reasons for the ubiquity of slavery in every society has been its protean nature. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to explain that there is no such thing as American slavery. There is slavery in America, but that it's different in uh, Tidewater, uh, Virginia, from Piedmont, Virginia, and to central North Carolina. That part of that is this is the this is the way and to answer that part of the answer mm -hmm. that question is is the is the the, the to to to, divorce, to changing nature of slavery and servitude and racial relations, mm -hmm. uh, while at the same time this unchanging fact that whites are somehow able to puzzle out how to stay on top. Well, and if we can go back to just for purposes of of description uh, mm -hmm. or example to go back to Northern Virginia, Northern Virginia was once a bustling slave society. Uh, very important, very important part of the tobacco economy of pre-revolutionary Virginia. But as that tobacco economy started to play out, planters, slave owners in Northern Virginia had to start figuring out what they were gonna do next. And eventually part of what they do is they start selling off slaves elsewhere mm -hmm. as part of the internal slave trade. So, mm -hmm. They preserve their power in part by shifting out of one economic form or one form of labor into another form of labor and diversifying the ag their agriculture. In that regard, the, pop the black population of Northern Virginia went down as proportion of the population. But that, in a sense, was testament to the expansion or preservation of the power of the white elites in the region. So that'd be just one example of the, yep. the kind of transitions that white elites made across the region. Uh, so we, um, you have this idea, which I, I found very powerful. Oh, I really adore it, of the disrupted South. And it, it fits in with stuff I've been thinking lately. It was. It felt so. It felt very serendipitous. Naturally, I regarded it as true because I've been thinking the same thing. Um, it must be, uh, but it must be <laughs> obviously. So this disrupted South. Could you explain it? Because it, it, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Well, we know about the big the the big disruption and and the big disruption. The American Civil War is. It, I think it is very hard. I know it's hard for me to grasp the scale of the upheaval of the American Civil War. And we can try to do it with statistics about the number of dead, the number of horses that were killed, mules, like miles of railroad track that were destroyed, et cetera. But statistics, you know, they just don't, we, it doesn't give us the kind of lived sense of what it was. And those of us, we've all experienced, for example, 9-11, certainly a catastrophe for the nation, but just, I don't know how many times you'd have to square that qubit to come to anything like the American Civil War. In any case, so that's one enormous disruption that we've all recognized. But as we've learned more about how the revolution played out in the American South, we now realize that it was, if it wasn't a civil war, it was a guerrilla war of a particularly ugly kind incredibly disruptive, not just for white society, but also because so many black Americans, black Southerners responded to British calls for emancipation by serving the British as opposed to the colonials. Um, so there was disruption to the institution of slavery, um, economic displacement. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so now we recognize the revolutions much more tumultuous than we thought in the South. As we've learned more about the colonial period, we've learned more about the, the, the violence involved in dispossessing 
uh, Native Americans of their lands, not just during the 19th century, but going all the way back, the tremendous struggles, for example, in Georgia between Anglo, I'll call them Anglo-American colonists and the Spanish along the boundaries, the French. Uh, so the, the colonial period was marked by great tumult. Then, and we can and we can go even right. farther back and look at the. I mean, we've talked on the podcast with Jim Horn about the the the, the great rebellions of sixteen twenty one, yeah, twenty one uh, in Virginia. But you know, the relatively small numbers of natives on one side, but also of white English French colonists in say South Carolina during the Yamasee Wars, the Tuscarora Wars in North Carolina. These are incredibly violent and fraught. Uh, balanced on a knife edge outcomes exactly. which change the landscape uh, uh, around them uh, such as their effect. And because we tried to orient, especially in the, the uh, first four chapters of the book, we're trying to focus on everybody who's living in the space that we call the South. The tumult that I'm talking about isn't just to Euro colonialists. It, it, it's even more Tumultuous. You see, the upheavals are are uh, existentially profound for the Native American populations that are being forced hither and yon, are being decimated by biological consequences of the uh, arrival of Europeans, and whose politics are disrupted by the ways in which they have to respond to. The Europeans. So mm -hmm. uh, the the American Revolution is matched by a kind of uh, a somewhat similar civil war in the Cherokee. Mm -hmm. You know, between two different views on how you deal with the Virginians, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know uh, who they're most worried about, and 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 that leads to a split within the uh, tribe and 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 bitter a bitter civil war between. And them. and if we go to the other side of that great upheaval, the American Civil War. It's easy to see this. It, it, we may be tempted to see the South from 1865 to, we'll say, 1965 for that century as being fairly static. But then, I mean, just think that's when the Cotton South really explodes. There's the population, the peopling of vast areas of the South that had previously been unsettled. There's the urbanization. Um, and then in the early 20th century, there's the great migration. So the point being that we're not, I'm not suggesting that all of these upheavals are of equal magnitude. That's not the point. It's just to have lived as a Southerner is to have lived whatever your length of life was, you were likely to have lived through at least one or more transition that you could never have anticipated and probably didn't welcome. Yeah, I, I've thought of, I was thinking about this in relation to the often used phrase New South, which, you know, uh, I think modern people use it now for post-civil rights South mm -hmm. and historians use it for <laughs> Henry Grady's New right. South. So we've got a New South and New New South. And I was thinking, as I've been thinking a lot about the revolution in the South, I've been th I was thinking, well, you know, the first New South is really what we call the antebellum South. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. By 1798, uh, because of many things, not just the cotton gin. But there are a whole host of political, the vicious political tumult amongst just rebels alone. You know, you can see this in Georgia politics uh, as they fight and duel and kill each other for reasons that seem almost inexplicable to us. We see that politics is shaking out in a violent way into through the 1790s for reasons that are almost internal to South Carolina and Georgia. But by the end of it. You know, in 18, what, what's the Constitution of South Carolina, 1806, 1808? You've got every free white man can vote. Well, actually, for a while, it's every free man. I mean, that's something that's not going to happen in England for mm -hmm. 30, 60 years. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an indicative of what, of the, the, the tumult of the revolution. And that is, in effect, a new South. Mm -hmm. That's yep. been created. And and I, I suspect if I go back, I could figure out that in some ways there's a new South in the 1740s, too. Mm -hmm. you know? Because the, the South, part of what fascinates me about the South is how it continually remakes itself. Well, and we, it's of the quote-unquote original parts of the colonial United States. It's geographically the largest region. And so that it's 
you, it's interesting, as you said, we talk about New England as essentially runs from Maine to New York, we'll say. And some people might say, well, New York, maybe, maybe not. Half of Connecticut. Yeah, half, part, the part that right. roots for the Yankees, right. that doesn't count. Right. Yeah. And, but we, we for, for a variety of historical and political reasons, we don't talk about New England as extending all the way across. We can, We though. can, I mean, We, could, we, we certainly could. could. Yeah. But it's just yeah. not part of the way we historically have no. thought about it. My point about the South is, I think, in part, because Virginia claimed from Jamestown all the way out to as, as far as it, yes, exactly. There was a kind of territorial ambition mm -hmm. uh, in the South that runs throughout that, that early national period. And in a region that size being populated by Euro-Americans with the speed, yeah, it's just upheaval everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's a point we really wanted to drive home. You have uh, four miniature biographies of Southerners, very different Southerners, as, as, as listeners will see, to, to drive home this point of lives that are marked by extreme change. Could we, let's, we've, we, we've gone about uh, halfway through, so could we march through them? Because, and then talk about some other people that could add to them. Because I, I started, I, this is a great uh, parlor game for people interested in Southern history. You can start realizing that nearly, I think John C. Calhoun's life is marked by extreme change. Okay. You, th so, you know, you see, you see someone who we think of as the Iron Man, unbending, unchangeable, but it's, but he changes a lot. Mm -hmm. And his, but then his circumstances also, when you think about it, his circumstances change a lot in his life. Well, I, I was trying to think of four figures without... Uh, but picking four, we could pick four iconic Southerners, but mm -hmm. we tend, if you pick sort of iconic figures, you tend to see them as being, uh, well, they're, they're, they're precisely they because up, they're iconic, they raise yes. all sorts of other questions. So, well, because they're iconic, they're in a fixed, they're right. a fixed style and portrait, and that's this is the way that they appear, like Calhoun. Right. So you you have to think about these people first in order to undo the icon. I think. Well, and and I so we could we could tell the story, for example, using the uh, one of the most iconic Southerners of the white Southerners of the nineteenth century, Robert E. Lee, and you could start off by talking about a person who's who's ancestry in Virginia society should have placed him at the very pinnacle of not only Virginia society, but national public life. And that prior to the advent of the Civil War, he's highly regarded in the American military, but a colonel does not a high standing, you know, colonels don't make a lot of money. And outside of military circles, Robert E. Lee would, would have died. Had he died in 18... 59, he would have been a prominent figure in the history of American military at a time when the American military wasn't very distinguished. So right. uh, we could tell that story, but I was trying to think of figures who we could relate uh, that, shall we say, were a little fresher. So you started with a Choctaw chief, Francho Mastabe. Who is a fascinating figure to me. And I say this is not an expert at no. all. Uh, so learning about him from scholars who are experts on the Choctaw, he strikes me as a fascinating figure because he's confronted with the problem. Uh, I, I sort of see it as what must have been, it must have been like to be the prince or the king of some European principality in Central Europe. And you're trying to figure out, okay, they got the Austrian Empire here, you got the French there, the, Turks. the Dutch, the Turks, the Spanish. Um, all right, how are you gonna how are you gonna deal with these empires? Uh, how are you gonna protect the interests of your people? How are you gonna trade for those things that you need? And and part of what happens in the uh, 19th, uh, the 18th century with the Choctaws, of course, they develop a healthy appetite for certain European goods. And 
that increase creates all sorts of tensions because then you have to figure out, oh, okay, what are you going to trade with the Europeans for? And the ways in which those trading relationships may erode your power relative to the Europeans or may create alliances within the Choctaw Nation, or I should say factions within the Choctaw Choctaw Nation. There may be Choctaws who disagree about what, what the economic foundation should be. And so he had to navigate these waters at a time when there were the French, Spanish, and English. And then the revolution happens, and he's still dealing with the French, Spanish, and English, and now the Americans. And then gradually, it's more and more the Americans. So throughout that process, He's figuring out, as again, who has power, what's that power mean for the Choctaws, and how do I present the Choctaws as, if you will, in these imperial settings. And so he was remarkably successful, but by the end of his life, circumstances had changed to the point where the United States was the dominant power, and so then the Choctaws were going to have to figure out Okay, what are we going to do? Their main concern now are the Americans, plus whatever relationships we have with the Indians, the Native Americans around us as well. So to my way of thinking, that was he was a representative figure for a moment in time when the hegemony, the dominance of the United States was not certain. And he had to try to anticipate the future and figure out which imperial powers were most likely to be powerful going forward. Mary Gay, a very different type of, a very different person, but nonetheless, her life is marked by extraordinary disruptive change. And she's like, um, she's like a glider pilot of change. Mm -hmm. She she finds, finds the updrafts and the downdrafts and she, like all these people, they maneuver their way in through them. Uh, that's a that's a, a. I wish I had thought of that uh, analogy. That's that's a great way to describe her. I thought she was an interesting example of how change affected the lives of 19th century Southern white women. But also there's a link because she grows up on land that was taken from the Cherokees so that she's part of the whites who are displacing the Choctaws and the Creeks and the Cherokees. Um, and she grows up in a privileged, she has a privileged slaveholding background growing up in the area in Northern, not now what we call Northern Georgia, what was then the, what would become the Atlanta environs. Um, and she seems like she's, destined for the life of a plantation mistress, for lack of a better word. Um, although she does, she's uncommonly well-educated for a white woman of her era, and she does take to writing poetry, which was not conventional behavior. It, it might be one thing to write poetry in your own day book, but to publish, she actually self-published some poetry before the Civil War. Civil War comes along, it just blows up her world. Um, her, her brother serves and uh, she ends up being at home. Uh, she's unmarried, she's at home with her sister-in-law and children and in the Atlanta environs and has to figure out how to keep things running. So she's one of those classic mothers of invention that Drew Gilpin Faust wrote about, who's running a household, if you will, by the seat of her pants during the Civil War. She has various roles during the Civil War where she aids the Confederate cause, once by smuggling ammunition across enemy lines. Uh, when the Civil War ends, the family's financially destitute by comparison to their status before and there's no male head of household. And so she has to figure out how to make a living. Her sister has to figure out, her sister-in-law, oh no, pardon me, her sister has to figure out how to make a living. And so she becomes 
she tries various different things, but essentially she becomes a self-published author who travels around selling her book, which is a memoir of her childhood and particularly the Civil War era, her Civil War experiences. Because it sells very well by the standards of the day, it sells very well and she's able to support herself and her family uh, off of these the earnings. So she portrays herself as an unwilling new southerner, if you will. She writes glowingly about the South before the war. But she herself obviously had real gumption and ambition. And as a single unmarried woman, traveled all over the place by railroad, Railroad's an important part of her story because it makes it possible for her to travel from place to place, place hawking her autobiography. And then she writes, she writes two more books and continues to do that until her death in the early 20th century. And, and she's one of the, she puts several bricks into the wall of the lost cause. Absolutely. I yep. would call her the four, one of the foremost Masons. Yep. She's not a, a General Pickett's widow. Yeah. Is, that has a very reminiscent career, um, but there there must have been uh, maybe more than fingers on hands of of these of women going around giving talks like this, presentations like that. And so she's an example of the kind of entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. you could say, self-made. I realize she came from a privileged background, but she's building off of a foundation of destitution after the war. You could call her as a self-made um, literary woman who hustles and mm -hmm. is able to... And yet who probably read Henry Grady's editorials with a curl of the lip, mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yep. You know, with, with that, you know, she's, she's a hustler who at the same time is creating this, you know, imagined tradition. Yep, yep. So her exact contemporary is a very different fella, Nicodemus Taylor. So the... Attraction to Nicodemus Taylor for me is twofold. One, I, I was working with a graduate student who wrote his dissertation about the origins of black golf caddies in the South and the, and the laboring tradition of black golf, golf caddies, which were ubiquitous in the American South alone. This would be an example of Southern distinctiveness and who golf, black golf caddies were the first distinguished black American golfers for a generation. Um, so it's a very interesting tradition that disappeared from starting in the 1960s until Augusta got rid of black caddies in 1983. Um, so what, how does this have to do with Nicodemus Taylor? Well, he was one of the first golf caddies at Pinehurst, but what attracted me to his story is, of course, the coincidence of his date of birth, exact contemporary of gaze was part of it, but it's that they, he lived through the same period of time, but his life bore no resemblance, even though he lived you know, a few hundred miles from Atlanta. He grew up in uh, the Sand Hills of North Carolina, well, he, he moved to the Sand Hills of North Carolina and was enslaved there until after the Civil War when he then entered into the uh, naval stores industry and then the timbering industry. And to me, that's one of the great, it's acknowledged by historians, but unrecognized stories for non-historical specialists of mm -hmm. the post-Civil War South. And that is the timbering of the largest contiguous forest in continental United States, which stretched from North Carolina to Texas. And it was timbered in two generations, and it's, it's just an environmental transformation of the South of a colossal scale, unimaginable scale, just generations before. In any case, Nicodemus Taylor is one of the foot soldiers of that environmental transformation. And he continued to do that until 
the, the sand hills of North Carolina had been denuded, which was roughly at the same time that an entrepreneur from Massachusetts, Tufts, was looking for a place to build a health resort for upper and middle class New Englanders who wanted to winter in the South for lung conditions and other reasons. And so he started building this planned community at Pinehurst. Nicodemus Taylor worked there, may have actually sold land upon which Pinehurst was built. And then after it became clear that Pinehurst wasn't really going to make it as a health resort, they turned it into a golf resort. And Nicodemus Taylor would then end up being a golf caddy, being, if you will, a personal servant on the golf course to white New Englanders who were golfing. And the story then evolves that after he golfed for a while, I and mean, he had a very long life, he then ended up becoming a major black landholder outside of the environs of Pinehurst and founded a black community where black workers at Pinehurst, including black caddies lived, called Taylorville. And he became the sort of unofficial mayor of that. So there's a story of a black man who his life is in many ways always tied to the economic fortunes of, of the white South. And yet he finds a way to build an economic, a degree of economic security and influence for himself on the periphery. Um, and Taylorville exists to the present day. Well, I, I loved it because it, it, it takes us from, you know, Mary Gay's and sort of Margaret Mitchell's using uh, Mary Gay's member to create her myth of the South mm -hmm. to then to uh, Walker Percy's South, which is one of, I think, Buick dealers and golf courses. Yep. You know, and yep. so it, it takes us right from and from turpent and by way of turpentine camps and logging mm -hmm. camps, which, as you say, are for historians of the set. This is that's a fascinating place, but uh, and the destruction of the longleaf pine forests. Um, but then it takes us to the golf course, yep. um, that which is the, the new new south for right. sure. And where again, going back to that story about the caddies, the why I brought it up is caddies, it, it is actually a very attractive although complicated job for black men, because on the one hand, it's not particularly hard work. You could be tipped well, but you had to deal with the racial etiquette every single minute you're on the golf course with these white people, reading what you can tell them, what you can't tell them, reading if you can offer advice to somebody who's slicing the ball or reading how to play the green that becomes an art form for blacks. And then technology comes along, the golf cart comes along, the desegregation of golf courses and that world disappears. And golf, black golf caddies, uh, they're no longer a, a particular labor category. Well, the last person in this sequence uh, that I chose is a comparatively familiar figure, or he was, and that's Jim Eastland. And I thought of Eastland as a way to talk about someone who you would, generally thinking you'd say the upheaval in his life was comparatively modest and that he grew up in a privileged Mississippi Delta family, family that owned a lot of land, had political power, used their power as they saw fit, including violently extreme violence without repercussions uh, and he entered into politics, became an enormously powerful figure in Mississippi politics, but especially in uh, the U.S. Senate, in, in Congress. And he endured for 40 years in, in Washington power with taking advantage of the seniority system in the Democratic Party. But the upheaval, in his case, the upheaval wasn't directly affecting him in the same ways as the other figures I mentioned, except at the end of his life, the upheaval is so complete that he has to retire from politics because he knows that he cannot win re-election. 
in a Democratic Party that has moved. He has only one course in the late 70s. His future, if he wants to remain a white politician in Mississippi, is he either leaves the Democratic Party and goes to the Republican Party or else he retires from politics and he elects to retire. And so in that regard, I think it speaks to the upheaval that had shattered the Democratic, the white Democratic hegemony that had been present in Mississippi with minor fractures now and then, but had essentially been present from 1875 to, we'll say roughly 1975. You could say 1968, depending on... I would even say that I've I just been looking at the presidential election. It's interesting. It's Eisenhower's elections that start to put the cracks and things. Yeah. So I mean, that, you could, that which, are un, which are unimaginable. Right. You, uh, you could 50, pick... Your, 50 years before That's that. a good point. You could pick your date, but by... He's able to win re-election in the Democratic Party, even though Jim Aislinn was as ardent a segregationist as you could right. find. He was able to win re-election until the late 70s, and then the Democratic Party, the coalition of white and black Mississippians, makes it so that there's no future for him. And so that's the upheaval I see in his life. Mm -hmm. he, he's able, because of his power, he was able to endure what was going on. Uh, he was able to survive what was going on till the very end of his career. Well, we've got about 10 or so minutes uh, left, but I, I want to uh, also highlight uh, uh, something you observe on the importance of ethnic interaction, exchange, and contest. And you use two examples from North Carolina. Could we, could we just talk about that before we start wrapping things up? Sure. You'll have to remind me which the examples so are. First of all, first of all would be the Lumbee. Oh, the Lumbee, yes. Yeah, which, which we could, and we could replay that in every state in the South, all the way up into Delaware, uh, because they are what anthropologists used to call, I'm not sure if this is proper anymore, but tri-racial isolates. Mm -hmm. um, they are a mixture of multiple different native tribes who then were forgotten, quote unquote. Um, they, they, they are Indians who disappeared, quote unquote, but they never disappeared. Mm -hmm. They just stayed there amongst the white community and were overlooked. But then they intermarried uh, mm -hmm. with different tribes intermarry, but then they also intermarry with whites and they intermarry with, with, with free blacks. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then they become like the Lumbee, the Melungeons, mm -hmm. uh, groups in Delaware, um, different names all over the place, but the same pattern ha replicating itself throughout the, the South. Well, I, you just described it very well. I, I, I think they're very valuable for historians, not not just, I mean, the, the human story of the Lumbee is, of course, fascinating and important in and of itself. But thinking about the region of the South and incorporating the Lumbees and others like the Lumbees into the story, remind us how important it is that actors themselves, historical actors themselves, were pushing against these categories as well as contributing to the making of those categories. And so I think the interesting thing about the Lumbees is at various moments and times, Lumbees could have, as you said, disappeared, but the Lumbees do not allow themselves to disappear. Mm -hmm. And so they do that in very interesting ways. Uh, they do that in part because they do not want to be for example, placed, they do not want to be forced into schools with African American, their African American neighbors. They want to keep distinct. If they're not going to be allowed into the white schools, they're going to have their own schools. And there's, that's where I think the, the very powerful sense of an identity that they were willing to defend in the Jim Crow South, it then becomes crucial to the ways in which they can strategize to preserve their existence by winning certain, uh, what would, certain, cap I can't even think of the word, certain concessions from white North Carolinians to acknowledge their existence 
And those concessions don't really challenge white power in any way, so whites are willing to, make, to offer them. But those concessions are enormously important to the preservation of a Lumbee identity. And I think to even to the present day, uh, Lumbees, many Lumbees could quote unquote pass if they wanted to, but they have no desire to do so. Mm -hmm. Heather Locklear, one of the most famous Lumbees. So I, I would say that she could pass. Uh, but she's Lumbee. Yeah, and it's it's, and, and I, I'm in no way suggesting anyone should want to have to pass. But the point being that it's a, uh, it's an identity that, in the Jim Crow era, was preserved at some cost. Mm -hmm. But those costs were less important, so to speak. It's not that they willingly accepted those costs. But if they had to, they would surrender some things in order to preserve that identity. And I, I have no, I mean, I, I know nothing about the South after 1800 anyway, so what do <laughs> I, but I've always wondered uh, to what extent, well, it's like, uh, you know, we've talked, uh, we've talked with, um, about, uh, with Warren Miltier about his work on, on free blacks. And there's a way in which free blacks in the South always act as a sign and contradiction to the racial order. And I've always, uh, it, given the number of tri-racial groups uh, like the Lumbee in the South, I've always wondered to what extent they act as a sign and contradiction to the racial order mm -hmm. themselves. I think you see it in Virginia with the, the really not sure what to do with, you know, the Powhatan peoples and the Mataponis and, and so on, and how do you classify them? And just, you know, it's it's like, you know, they might be descended from Pocahontas, but they're not all, you know, is yeah. it all, et cetera. But well, and, uh, I, I just don't know. And, and that definitional issue has been uh, enormously complicated and central to, in some ways, this is my understanding, is central to Lumbee identity that, mm -hmm. The debate over what it is that makes a Lumbee is, is a kind of ongoing existential quality. But, I mean, that's not, having lived in Canada, you could say that's part of the Quebecois identity, or for mm -hmm. that matter, part of the larger Canadian identity. So there are lots of people who have that challenge. Um, just in the case, as you point out, in the, of the Lumbee and, and analog groups in the American South, uh, it, it had, particular salience uh, at a time when white privilege was so stark and whites were, if you will, using every tactic imaginable to deprive other groups of any privileges. Well, let's, uh, we start uh, tying this together with a nice uh, bow and, and everything. Uh, you, um, we've already talked a little bit about the aberrant South as a part of the Enduring South, you, um, you write, Southern distinctiveness about which so much ink has been spilled is not an organizing conceit in this volume. It, nevertheless, American letters and popular culture are rife with meditations that exaggerate the South eccentricities. Uh, I think we've already touched on that a little bit, but it's worth just, I think, figuring about why you don't want to go there. Well, it's, partially because so many people have gone there and some of them have done it so well. Uh, I mean, for example, you mentioned Erskine Caldwell. Uh, I, I happen to love Tobacco Road. I don't like the movie so much, but the, the novel, I just, I laugh uproariously. But I would tell you when I've tried to teach it, it does it, it has not gone well at all. Uh, yeah. In any case, uh, there, uh, there's, I mean, there's so many people. I, I mean, who can top Tennessee Williams? Uh, who can mm -hmm. top, I mean, Faulkner? Who can top Flannery O'Connor? I mean, there's so many. Or W.J. Cash. W who, I mean, as C. Van, Van Woodward hated to talk about, but, you know, it, Cash is a powerful pro stylist and once yep. you read him he will ruin you yep. for at least five to ten years yep. yeah so there uh, so partially it, it's that it's been done but I also think that the 
let's just for the purpose of, I'll use a counterexample. Isn't eccentricity a, a, a sort of strange, aberrant eccentricity a very, very powerful part of the New England mythology? I, I, thinking of old women living alone in houses in Maine, or they're Christian scientists, and uh, I could run on with the imagery. Um, granted, it hasn't produced the same volume, uh, but I, I, I think the, uh, the eccentricity can be overdone. Uh, and more importantly, that's not what the vast majority of the South is. And in our own, if I was to use another literary figure, it's somebody like Bobby Ann Mason back in the 80s when Bobby Ann Mason's writing was attracting so much attention. He's writing about people who live nine to five lives in trailer home parks. Um, that's, that's as much or more of the South that I'm interested in. Uh, and that's, again, not to deny the, the colorful eccentricities of the South by any means, but uh, the, and, and uh, this word is, sounds inherently pejorative, but I can't think of the better word. The banal South is the mm -hmm. South that I want to understand. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, there's, you, you go through a brief uh, couple paragraphs trying to show how the South is not distinctive. And yet the book is worth writing, so there must be something about it. I mean, the South, we, we this is a, gets into, like, a questions of how to organize SHA conferences. But obviously the South is related to the Caribbean and Latin America in interesting ways, but it's not right. the Caribbean right. and Latin right. America. Obviously the economy of the South in the antebellum uh, United States is tremendously important to the success of you know the northern industry although we can again we can have bitter bitter fights uh, that re might result in physical violence about to what extent that's the case or to how yeah um, we can talk about how there's a white supremacy attitude throughout the united states and, and beyond uh, which doesn't make the south unique and yet there are such things as societies with slaves and slave societies and societies in which there are some slaves and there are distinctions between them. Um, and so the South is different. Right. And if, if I gave the impression that we were denying Southern distinctiveness, that's poor writing on my part. What I was trying to say is we didn't use Southern distinctiveness as an organizing principle, as a constant. That's nice, yeah. What I would say is the South is distinct. We can, we can identify ways where it's appropriate and analytically useful to talk about Southern distinctiveness, but they're not constant. What makes the South distinctive in 1800 may be different from what makes it distinctive in 1900. So we can still see important regional identifiers for lack of a better word, we can still pay attention to them, but it's not as though we should assume that the attribute that defined the South in 1750 as distinctive is the same one that's going to define it as distinctive in 2020. There, there may be certain things that are comparatively constant, but over long periods of time, but I, I like to point out with students, for example, with foodways. It's one example I recently in a class used. I asked student, what, what was Southerners, you know, if, if you were to say, what was the bread that Southerners ate? What form of bread? They all said biscuits. They said, no, cornbread, cornbread, cornbread. <sighs> Oh God, what do they what do they know like, don't they understand about leavening agents well exactly that's just it they don't so you now cornbread was for centuries what people ate and then late 19th century the biscuit takes off and yes now the biscuit is what we associate but i wanted to make the point that and now biscuits southerners do eat many more biscuits per capita than non-southerners so 
you can say since we'll say 1880 roughly biscuits is a crucial part of southern foodways uh but it's it's got a history it's got a starting point and an ending point and that's true with many of the things that we associate with southern distinctiveness yeah um we better end it there uh, before we keep on going and going and going. My guest today has been Fitz Brundage. He is the editor of the brand spanking new, I should I have to stop saying new to refer to it, because the title is The New History of the American South, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Fitz Brundage, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been a, my pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.